Welcome to the Council of Institutional Investors podcast on corporate governance and capital markets regulation. I'm Jeff Mahoney, General Counsel of CII. The purpose of these monthly episodes is to update CII members and the general public on significant developments in U.S. corporate governance and capital markets regulation and CII's related advocacy activity. This update covers a period from May 30th to June 28th, 2023. The following is my top 10 list of events over that period. Number 10, at a June 7th hearing before the House of Representatives Education and Workforce Committee, Acting Secretary of Labor Julie Sue was grilled by Republican lawmakers on the Department of Labor's rule that allows private sector retirement plan fiduciaries to consider climate change and other environmental, social, and governance factors when they select retirement investments and vote proxies. Acting Secretary Sue asserted that the rule did not require financial advisors to do anything in particular, but instead gave them flexibility. In early March, both the House and Senate passed a bill that would have rescinded the Department of Labor rule, but President Joe Biden vetoed it on March 20th. On June 24th, The Hill reported that some House and Senate Republicans are calling for Acting Secretary Sue's name to be withdrawn by the Biden administration for nomination as Secretary of Labor and, quote, there is no sign of a vote coming anytime soon in the upper chamber, unquote. Number nine, on June 23rd, the ESG Working Group of the House of Representatives Committee on Financial Services issued a preliminary report on ESG climate-related financial services concerns. The report explores the key priorities and issues that the working group has identified to date and will continue to focus on throughout the 118th Congress. Those key priorities include the following eight items. One, reform the proxy voting system to safeguard the interests of retail investors. Two, promote transparency, accountability, and accuracy in the proxy advisory system. Three, enhance accountability in shareholder voting by aligning voting decisions with the economic interests of shareholders. Four, increase transparency and oversight of large asset managers to ensure their practices reflect the pecuniary interests of retail investors. Five, improve ESG rating agency accountability and transparency to safeguard retail shareholders. Six, strengthen oversight and conduct thorough investigations into federal regulatory efforts that would contort our financial system into a vehicle to implement climate policy. Seven, demand transparency, responsibility, and adherence to statutory limits from financial and consumer regulatory agencies. And eight, protect U.S. companies from burdensome European Union regulations, safeguarding American interests in global markets. Number eight, on June 21st, the Senate Banking Committee favorably reported to the full Senate by a vote of 21 to 2, the Recovering Executive Compensation Obtained from Unaccountable Practices Act, short named the Recoup Act. The legislation is intended to strengthen certain of the authorities of the Federal Reserve, Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, and the Office of the Comptroller of the Currency related to senior bank executives by amending the Federal Deposit Insurance Act. The Recoup Act includes a provision that would require depository institutions and depository institutional holding companies with at least $10 billion in total assets 
to adopt policies that allow the firm's board to claw back certain compensation received in the 24 months prior to a bank's failure from any senior executive who is responsible for the failed condition of the bank, including incentive-based and equity-based compensation, severance pay, and golden parachute benefits, as well as profits realized from selling the bank's stock. Senior executives are defined as individuals who have oversight authority for managing the overall governance, operations, risk, or finances of an institution or its holding company, and specifically includes the CEO, the COO, the CFO, the CLO, the CRO, and the chairman of the board. The Recoup Act would also require, among other provisions, depository institutions and their holding companies to adopt governance accountability standards in their bylaws intended to promote safety and soundness, responsiveness to supervisory matters, and responsible management. Number seven, on June 6th, the Public Company County Oversight Board invited public comments on a proposal that would amend auditing standards to require auditors to identify, evaluate, and communicate companies possible for actual noncompliance with laws and regulations, including fraud. PCAOB Chair Erica Y. Williams said that by catching and communicating noncompliance sooner, auditors can help companies course correct and better protect investors from risk. The PCOB's current standard on illegal acts does not include audit procedures specifically designed to detect illegal acts that could have a material effect on the financial statements. Broadly, the proposal seeks to strengthen auditor obligations related to companies' noncompliance with laws and regulations in three key respects. One, identify. The proposal would establish specific requirements for auditors to proactively identify through inquiry and other procedures, laws and regulations that are applicable to a company that could have a material effect on its financial statements if it is not compliant. The proposal also makes explicit that financial statement fraud is a type of noncompliance with laws and regulations. Two, evaluate. The proposal would strengthen requirements related to the auditor's evaluation of whether noncompliance with laws and regulations has occurred, and if so, the possible effects on the financial statements and other aspects of the audit. For example, the standard would require the auditor to consider whether specialized skill or knowledge is needed to assist the auditor in evaluating information indicating noncompliance has or may have occurred. And three, communicate. The proposal would make it clear that auditors are required to communicate to the appropriate level of management and the audit committee as soon as they are made aware that noncompliance with laws and regulations has or may have occurred. Additionally, the proposal would create a new requirement that the auditor must communicate to management and the audit committee the results of the auditor's evaluation of such information. The deadline for public comment on the proposal is August 7th. Council of Institutional Investors currently plans to submit a comment letter in response to the proposal. Number six, on June 2nd, President Joe Biden renominated Mark Ueda to serve a full term as Commissioner at Securities and Exchange Commission. Commissioner Ueda was confirmed by the Senate last June to finish the year left in the term of former SEC Commissioner Elad Roisman, who had resigned. Commissioner Ueda's new term at the commission expires June 5th. 2028. And on June 21st, speaking at the Society for Corporate Governance, Commissioner Ueda discussed potential changes to Rule 14A8 and commission staff practices for reviewing shareholder proposals. Observing that in 2023, 
at least 961 proposals were submitted pursuant to Rule 14A8, representing an 18% increase from 2021. Commissioner Ueda raised concerns about shareholder proposal overload, particularly for investors who hold a large number of companies as part of a diversified portfolio. Although Commissioner Ueda observed that shareholder proposals that limit management entrenchment can add value to a company, he cautioned that others may not, and said some asset managers have expressed concern that the influx of shareholder proposals are not resulting in a corresponding increase in enterprise value, and instead are reflecting a level of prescriptiveness, lack of connection to material risks or long-term value, and decrease to overall quality. Accordingly, Commissioner Ueda outlined three policy approaches for the commission to address these concerns, including one, the greater use of private ordering to manage shareholder proposals. Two, the exclusion of proposals on social policy issues that lack a material relationship with the company. And three, potential changes to how the commission staff processes shareholder proposals. In particular, Commissioner Ueda suggested that the SEC establish a single standard for evaluating social policy issues and shareholder proposals under Rule 14A8 and argued that staff should take three actions. One, not make determinations on whether an issue is a social policy issue, as these decisions are fact-intensive and inherently subjective. Two, consider refraining from making any determinations on whether a proposal violates an area of law other than the federal securities laws. And three, provide more explanation of its decisions in no-action letters. Number five, on June 9th, Securities Exchange Commission approved amendments to the New York Stock Exchange's and NASDAQ's clawback listing standards, allowing these changes to push forward their effective date for the standards to October 2nd and giving companies until December 1st to adopt recoupment policies or phase D listing. Clawback listing standards originally had a compliance deadline of early August for listed companies. Mandated by rule adopted by the Securities Exchange Commission in October 2022, the New York Stock Exchange's and NASDAQ's listing standards apply to most listed companies, including emerging growth companies, smaller reporting companies, and foreign private issuers. The SEC adopted the final clawback rule to implement a provision of the Dodd-Frank Wall Street Reform and Consumer Protection Act, for which the Council of Institutional Investors was a primary advocate. The SEC clawback rule requires securities exchanges to mandate that listed companies have policies providing for the recovery of erroneously awarded incentive-based compensation received by current or former executive officers. The rule applies to all required restatements made to correct errors in previously issued financial statements, including little r restatements that are less transparent, a clarification to the rule that CII actively advocated for. Number four, on June 7th, in a call to reporters, Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler reportedly said that the commission will not extend the temporary no-action relief that it granted to the Securities Industry and Financial Markets Association in 2017, allowing investors to pay separately for research and trade execution. The no-action relief set to expire July 3rd allows certain financial service providers to continue to bundle the cost for research with those for trade execution services 
and avoid registration as an investment advisor. Many institutional investors, consistent with the membership-approved policy of the Council of Institutional Investors, prefer to shop separately for research, trading, and other services, and oppose being compelled to pay for research they do not want in order to access trading and other services. CII and the CFA Institute and the Healthy Markets Association sent a letter May 23rd to the chair and ranking member of the House of Representatives Financial Services Committee opposing a bill that would override an SEC decision to allow the 2017 no-action relief to expire. On May 24th, the bill was approved by the Committee on Financial Services by a vote of 45 to 2 after being amended to defer the expiration of no-action relief for six months and require the SEC to conduct a study. The bill, however, has not yet been voted on by the entire House, nor has a companion bill been considered in the Senate. Number three, on June 1st, the United States Supreme Court in Slack versus Harani held that plaintiffs suing under Section 11 of the Securities Act of 1933 must trace their shares to a registration statement that they allege was defective when they acquired the shares in a direct listing. The unanimous decision reversed a Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals ruling in September of 2021 that a plaintiff could sue under Section 11, even if the shares acquired in a direct listing could not be traced to a registration statement. The Supreme Court also remanded the case to the Ninth Circuit for consideration of liability under a different section of the Securities Act. The High Court's ruling means that Section 11, arguably one of the most important investor protection provisions in all of the federal securities laws, may be beyond the reach of investors who suffer losses as a result of material misrepresentations or omissions in registration statements for direct listings. The decision could potentially spur private companies to go public via direct listing instead of a traditional IPO to avoid Section 11 liability, an outcome foreseen by the Ninth Circuit in its ruling in which it stated, quote, from a liability standpoint, it is unclear why any company, even one acting in good faith, would choose to go public through a traditional IPO if it could avoid any risk of Section 11 liability by choosing a direct listing, unquote. In light of the Supreme Court's decision, the Council of Institutional Investors believes Securities and Exchange Commission should consider rulemaking to address Section 11 liability in direct listings. With yours truly publicly commenting that the SEC should seek to use technology or other mechanisms to allow the tracing of individual shares in a direct listing and improve the proxy plumbing system. Number two, on May 30th, the House of Representatives in a 347 to 30 vote passed the Enhancing Multi-Class Share Disclosures Act. Legislation, which was introduced by Representative Gregory Meeks of New York, would amend Securities Exchange Act of 1934, require companies with multi-class stock structures to disclose in their proxy or consent solicitation materials the voting power of each person who is a director, director nominee, or executive officer of the company, or who directly or indirectly holds 5% or more 
of the total combined voting power of all classes of securities entitled to vote in the election of directors. In April 25th letter, Council of Institutional Investors supported the bill and has backed the overall substance of similar legislation since 2018, when the Securities Exchange Commission Investor Advisory Committee, under the leadership of Harvard professor John Coates, made a similar recommendation. In the April letter, CI said, we believe that improving disclosure about public companies with multi-class structures is an important precursor to future legislation that would amend existing U.S. stock exchange listing standards to require meaningful time-based sunsets for newly listed companies. And the number one most significant development in corporate governance and capital markets regulation during the period from May 30th to June 28th occurred on June 13th, when Securities and Exchange Commission Chair Gary Gensler announced the release of the SEC Spring 2023 Regulatory Agenda, which outlines the SEC's rulemaking priorities over the next 12 months. The agenda includes a total of 55 rules, with 18 rules at the proposed stage and 37 rules at the final stage. Final adoption of rules for climate change disclosure, cybersecurity risk governance, and the modernization of beneficial ownership reporting have been pushed back from April to October. Final rules on amendments to 14A8 are still expected on or before October. And the expected release of a proposed rule on human capital management disclosure was deferred from April to honor before October. Proposed corporate board diversity disclosures are now anticipated to be issued on or before April 2024 instead of October 2023. And proxy plumbing and conflict minerals rulemakings remain on the SEC's long-term agenda. And finally, on a related note, on June 22nd, House of Representatives, Financial Services, and General Government Subcommittee of the Appropriations Committee favorably reported to the full committee by voice vote its fiscal 2024 funding bill. That bill would, among other measures, fund the Securities Exchange Commission at approximately $2 billion, which is $170.4 million below the fiscal year 2023 enacted level. The bill also includes provisions stipulating that none of the funds made available may be used to finalize, implement, or enforce SEC rulemakings in the following three areas. One, climate-related disclosures. Two, open-end fund liquidity risk management programs and swing pricing. And three, the Commission's safeguarding and custody rules. At this point, it's uncertain whether any of these provisions in the bill will ultimately be approved by the entire House or the Senate and or become an appropriations bill that would be submitted to and signed into law by President Biden. That completes my monthly U.S. corporate governance and capital markets update. If you have any questions regarding any of the issues discussed, please feel free to email me at jeff, J-E-F-F, at C-I-I dot O-R-G. Until next time, I'm Jeff Mahoney. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Voice of Corporate Governance, brought to you by the Council of Institutional Investors. The Voice of Corporate Governance is a free, non-sponsored podcast that highlights critical developments in corporate governance and other important issues affecting institutional investors. 
The views expressed by those interviewed on the podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of CII or its members. For more information on CII and its policies on corporate governance, please visit our website at www.cii.org.